All right, we're in Matthew uh, chapter 6. We're going to look at verses 11 through 13 this morning as we finish the Lord's Prayer, or I guess we're calling it the Disciples' Prayer to be more accurate. It's the prayer that the Lord gave His disciples in a form so that we can get an idea of who God is, what He's like. Matthew 6, 11 through 13. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. As I said last week, the Lord's Prayer seems to move from heaven to earth. In verses 9 and 10, you have a sense of being seated with God in heaven as you're talking with Him. And that sense changes in verse 11, and it's like God is standing next to you as you talk to Him in prayer about the issues that are affecting you on the earth. <clears throat> and so we're to live as if we're seated in heaven with the Lord. And uh, one of the things that that suggests to us is that every spiritual resource in heaven is available to you. So we're looking at this part of the prayer that talks about the Lord standing with us here on the earth and us having that conversation. <clears throat> this idea of being right next to the Lord is not original with me. Paul the Apostle said the same thing in his letter to the church at Ephesus. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 6, he says, God raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So Paul's understanding was that though physically you remain on the earth, uh, Jesus gave his disciples a perspective on their journey from earth to heaven, and that is to live as though uh, you were already seated in heaven and therefore your dad is right next to you. And so in verse 11 it says, Give us this day <coughs> excuse me, our daily bread. Believe it or not, scholars have a tough time translating these words. The particular word daily is only found here and in Luke's version of the Lord's Prayer. Nowhere else in Greek literature even. Uh, I'm told. It can mean both today's bread and tomorrow's bread. And so which is it? <coughs> it doesn't really have to be either, and it can probably be both. Uh, that's, we get into trouble a lot of times uh, interpreting the Bible or commenting on the Bible because if there's a dilemma, we feel like we have to resolve it. That has to be one way or the other. Uh, it's not like we need to half the time and this is one of those it can mean both it's a it's a big word it's a rich word if you're praying in the morning you need today's bread if you're praying at night you need tomorrow's bread uh, so you're just praying for daily bread looking ahead uh, 24 hours the point is that you live in total dependence on your father to provide what you need on the earth <clears throat> you can't help but be reminded of the bread God provided on a daily basis back in the Old Testament after he delivered Israel from slavery in Egypt, he gave them the manna from heaven. Uh, they were to go out each morning and gather it, and then they gathered twice as much just before the Sabbath day. Everybody had just enough, and there was no lack. And uh, they uh, ate it for 40 years, and I'm sure they had a lot of different manna recipes. Uh, so, but, but yeah, Keith Green had a portion of one of his songs where he... Bamama Burgers and Manicotti. Yeah. <laughs> oh, gosh. Bread is a basic staple of life. 
in the context of Jesus teaching you how to pray, you're to be confident that your Father knows what you need and He will provide it. And so when you're praying for daily bread, uh, you're, the idea here is that you can believe that your dad is going to provide for you on a daily basis all of those things that you need, even something as basic as bread. <clears throat> a couple of conclusions you can draw from this are, if he doesn't provide something that day, you don't need it. Uh, there's a passage in the biography of H.A. Ironside. It's a book called Ordained of the Lord by E. Schuler English. Really a great biography. Uh, it talks about Ironside when he was an itinerant minister. H.A. Ironside, great Bible commentator, formerly at uh, Dallas Theological Seminary. and Some of you are familiar with his writings. <clears throat> he was an itinerant minister. And I, think, I believe this particular story happened up in Fresno. He was uh, on the West Coast. Um, and uh, he was going from church to church and didn't get any honorarium or any money and ended up having to spend the night as a homeless person on a park bench, I'm pretty sure, and, and uh, uh, ended up uh, getting a, a donation from some people that turned out to be Mormons. Uh, and he was upset. He tried to give them their $10 back, but then the Lord told him that even Elijah was fed by the ravens. Uh, and so he thought, oh, okay, you know, and stuff. And so, but as a part of that, one of the things that he wrote in a letter to a friend of his, <clears throat> he says that God knows what I need, and he must have known that I needed to starve a little bit uh, to uh, enter into the fellowship of his sufferings. And so his attitude was to learn to be content in whatever situation that he was in. And so if God doesn't provide something, then you don't need it as much as you feel like you do. And he will sometimes provide a kind of bread you don't necessarily want, but that you do need. And that story would tie into that as well. Suffering is a kind of bread. It's a kind of sustenance that uh, we need or affliction or those kinds of things. And so it's a very deep concept that God is going to provide our daily bread. Verse 12 says, And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Now the key that unlocks the meaning of this is the simple word as. Let's say you're having a problem with someone, you're holding a grudge against them, or you have some bitterness towards them. Your father is right there standing next to you, but if you're out of fellowship with the other person, you're also out of fellowship with God. Because if you pray that God would forgive you as you have forgiven them, then you're actually asking God to withhold his forgiveness the way you are withholding yours. And so it's, a, it's more of an attitude adjustment than anything else. It's like, you know, you know, if God the Father was literally right next to you and you were just thrilled and excited about the forgiveness of your sins that He had accomplished for you through His Son, Jesus Christ, how can you hold a grudge or be bitter towards somebody who's uh, sinned against you to a lesser degree than you've sinned against God? And there's a lot of parables about that and, and a lot of teaching about that. And so we want to be forgiving folks, uh, you know, uh, in that way. Looking at it more positively, God has forgiven you so much and is your example of forgiveness and can empower you to forgive others who have wronged you. It's not that we can't forgive others, it's that we won't. Uh, notwithstanding people say and do terrible things, uh, none of them really rise to the level of reviling Christ on the cross and standing in, in the mass of lost humanity uh, you know whether we're openly antagonistic to Jesus or just ambivalent towards Him before we became Christians, 
it's always an argument from the lesser to the greater. We've been forgiven much, and so we ought to forgive much as well. And it won't kill you to forgive people. Um, By the way, this has nothing to do with your salvation. You're already a child of God here in the prayer. God is your Father who you're talking to. But if you have issues with your brothers and sisters, uh, you're not going to enjoy the fullness of your fellowship with your Father. This happens in your house if you have a family and and several children. Uh, If the kids are fighting, uh, it brings uh, difficulty into the whole house, you know, and, and... Good parents stop and they deal with those things. And so, it, it, you know, you don't hopefully tell your son, I think I only told Gene one time I had disowned him, but uh, no, you know, I mean, people do that. They, they threaten, I'm going to disown you, you're not my son, and I guess you can disown somebody financially, but they're always your son, you know, you can't change their DNA. Uh, so, but it, it, it brings a stress and a friction into the house until it's resolved, and so uh, you need to deal with these things. Uh, Verse 13 says, And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. The word for temptation means a trial or a testing which, if yielded to, will lead to sin. The two things you need to know about temptation. First, the Bible is clear that God does not tempt you to sin. Uh, Second, God does allow you to be tempted. Uh, He says here that temptation comes from the evil one. That's not to say that you are always or ever being attacked by the devil himself. It's a general observation. Uh, The idea here is that Satan and not God tempted Adam and Eve. God allowed it. They yielded and it led to sin. Their encounter with the evil one in the Garden of Eden set the stage for you to be tempted. So uh, there's a sense in which you can trace all temptation back to that original temptation and failure of Adam and Eve. So... Uh, you know, you're not probably grappling with the devil on a daily basis. Obviously, there are principalities and powers and hierarchies of demonic beings, and uh, they are surrounding us as our angels, and there are things going on there. Uh, but um, uh, luckily for us, uh, I think the devil is probably busy in San Francisco or New York or some you know some place like that strategizing and I, I don't think he set up shop in Hanford uh, so that that's the way that works so but anyway so temptation comes uh, ultimately hey bro from the evil one Jesus came to earth he too was tempted by the evil one there in a bleak wilderness tempted by Satan after 40 days of fasting Jesus relied upon the word of God and was victorious he prevailed, depending on his Father, to help him. Uh, we are fond of reminding you that Jesus, when he came to earth, though fully God, uh, was also fully man, and he determined not to use the prerogatives uh, of his deity. He walked on earth as a spirit-filled man, so that you and I can look at that and see the potential of a spirit-filled man and say, wow, you know, I could through the power of the Holy Spirit indwelling me, resist the devil should I find myself in a wilderness. Uh, Gene and I have been watching and talking about this new Discovery Channel show called Man vs. Wild. And uh, I love the bear grills. They drop him in the middle of the harshest environments on the planet with his knife and a flint and and a water bottle and he has to find his way to civilization in five days. And it's, it's pretty fun. He's a very personable guy and it's pretty fun and 
And uh, that's the kind of the picture here is that you, Jesus was dropped into the middle of the Judean wilderness with just his you know, memory of the Word of God and the, the filling of the Holy Spirit and could he find his way through temptation. Uh, and he did. Uh, and he, like this guy Bear Grylls, he does this, of course it's for television, but he does it in case you are ever stranded in the Sierra Nevada. Uh, you know, which, and then he gives the statistics on how many people are stranded there and how many people die in avalanches in Alaska and, uh, you know, how many people die in the Moab desert and all these different environments because they get lost out in these places and don't know what to do. And so Jesus is, is that in his wilderness temptation. You look at him and you think, this is how I survive in the wilderness of this world. I don't need physical things at all. In fact, they weigh me down. What I need is, the, is my knowledge of the Word of God, the filling of the Holy Spirit. And then I could, if I had to, face the worst possible situation and scenario, and that would be a personal encounter with the devil. Uh, and, and so we can work backwards from there and learn from our Lord. Fully God, but not using the prerogatives of His deity to deal with the devil. Not calling for angels ministered to by angels after it was over, uh, but you know, he never got tired and said, you know, Satan, I am so tired of you, you know, and just a bunch of angels appear and just work Satan over in the back room or something, you know. I mean he just you know, he just this is how a man deals with these things. And I like looking at Jesus that way throughout his life. This is how a man or a woman of God filled with the Holy Spirit acts. Uh, so temptation coming from the evil one. Uh, your dad is standing right next to you on the earth. He's wanting to help you resist the perils of temptation. And you can be confident that none of the temptations that he allows are beyond your ability to resist, provided you will depend upon him and not your own strength. This is a touchy, dicey, controversial subject anymore because in our society we have elevated uh, sin to uh, the level of uh, obsessive compulsive diseases and habits that can't be dealt with through uh, normal means of Bible study, prayer, spiritual discipline. Every, every time you turn on television, there's some pop psychology view of, you know, whatever it is, drug addiction, alcoholism, obesity, um, you know, a whole laundry list of different things that people <coughs> struggle with. Uh, there was a lady on TV the other day who had an obsessive compulsive eating disorder. She dealt with that, but she, but and I love these words. I I remember them from my psych classes. But she experienced transference of her obsessive compulsive behavior to shopping after that, and so she she was able to. It almost sounds like a demon, you know. And so it's like you know it. it it was on her for a while to just eat and eat and eat and, and, and be a, an obese individual. But the, the more she won that battle, then it's like, we're going to move over to this side of your brain and make you shop like crazy now. You know? And so uh, she's written a book and people are thinking, well, yeah, I have, I have OCD transference. And so, so now not only are you not responsible for anything you do, but once you beat it, you're going to do something else to take its place. And so there's really no end to these obsessions that you have. Uh, and as Christians, we sound kind of silly in today's society, telling people that they should just go to church and pray and seek the Lord. 
Uh, and then we have our own failures, which don't help any. You know, I mean, we sit there and we think, hey, yeah, maybe, maybe I'm not even doing this, you know, and stuff. And so we really just need to get back on track with the Lord, do the things that we're supposed to be doing, and be a witness and a testimony to people that, hey, that is a struggle. Man, that's a tough one, but it's, it's something that you can do through Christ who strengthens you. Uh, and and uh, are there people who have certain disorders or organic problems? Well, sure, I, we know a lot of them. Uh, there are people who have difficulties. And, and I think it's an extreme position to, um, to say that everything is just sin and habitual sinning. Uh, there are people who very obviously have hurt themselves or, or they're just not firing on all cylinders, you know, and, and there's, they need some help, sometimes chemical help. But the vast majority of people who just are living their daily life in the, a prison of, of obsession uh, really have been taught over the last couple of decades that Christianity can't help these matters anymore. That It's nice to have a spiritual part of your life but you really have this other part of your life that only science and medicine and psychology can help. And so uh, we want to be careful about all that. And so we want to follow the example of Jesus in the wilderness rather than the example of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, which, you know, theirs, theirs is a pretty good example of the modern, uh, you know, feeling that I didn't, it wasn't my fault. <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. It's, I, had a, I had a wife that forced me to sin. I had the devil made me do it, and uh, God held everybody personally responsible for their sin. And so your Father provides what you need. He's standing there to help you in your problems with people and through your perils. Those principles should guide you when you talk with Him. Verse 13 finishes by saying, For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Uh, this last sentence of the prayer is omitted in the Roman Catholic and some modern Protestant Bibles, and that's because it's lacking in some ancient manuscripts. This became a real problem for me at my wedding uh, because we, it was a Presbyterian ceremony uh, and as part of the ceremony we were reciting the Lord's Prayer and while everyone else was saying for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever, I was just saying amen uh, really loud uh, because I had never heard that before being a Catholic and no one thought to go over the Lord's Prayer part of the service because everyone knows the Lord's Prayer and so everybody's going for that, Amen! Oh, excuse me. <laughs> it was really, I'll never forget the embarrassment of that moment. So anyway, so I could go either way on this, but uh, it is in the majority of the manuscripts and, and there, there shouldn't be a problem including it. The kingdom of God is both literal and figurative. God will establish a literal kingdom. You guys know that. We call it the millennial kingdom or the millennium. At the same time, we say that God is sovereign. Nothing occurs outside the boundaries He has set even now. And everything is working together for the good of those who love Him. And so though His kingdom is not established on the earth, there is a sense of the kingdom of God, uh, the rule of God. Power is the energy by which the kingdom is maintained. And God has enough of it to do it. Glory is due Him for His plan of redemption for the human race. Amen. Some suppose the word is formed from the initial letters of the Greek Adonai Melech Nintan, which sounds more space-aged than... Uh, that's my best Greek, by the way. I don't know how to pronounce that. Except Adonai I'm pretty, pretty good on. So you got A-M-N or Amen, and it means my Lord the faithful King. Uh, the word itself implies a confident resting of the soul in God, 
with the fullest assurance that all these petitions shall be fulfilled to everyone who prays according to the directions given. And so the conclusion of the Lord's Prayer or the disciples' prayer is that your dad is standing next to you. He's got all the power and brings glory to himself through you as you await the coming kingdom. When it comes, it will be forever, which literally can be translated to the forevers, which I don't know what that means, but it sounds cool, doesn't it? To the forevers. It's it's, it's, it's an idea, it's just a long... Sometimes, I mean, we use the word forever, we use some words all the time and they don't have any real... And so, so, I mean, if you really wanted to emphasize, say, he's going to be here to the forevers. And you think, oh, okay, well, that's just a different way of saying the same thing, but deeper and richer. And so hang in there through conversation with God who's with you always to the end of the earth. Amen?